0: Y'all know what time it is. It is the one and the only runner with war. We three man in it, three-man weaving this bad boy. We got Gabe coming up the middle. We got a, one of our newest runners, Steve, coming in on the right side. And then if you look at the screen directly, I'm on the left wing. But you know what? I prefer the left wing because I can do my pull-up jump shot and that that and score that basketball I can that way. So it's all good <laughs> either way. But as we three-man weaving this thing, we know we talk about all things basketball and we got a lot. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, including this horrific rumor of us bringing in seven-foot big men that win defensive players of the years but have no offensive game. I, I, I'm not even gonna. We're gonna say that for later on down the conversation. But right <laughs> now, we got to start with what the real basketball is about. Right now, with the NBA finals, we got Game One and Games Two that just recently just been played between the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics. Don't get it twisted, y'all. I am wearing white and green. But you see, it do not say Celtics on it. It says Lakers, which is weird <laughs> considering if you're an LA Lakers fan. But you know, long story short, I'm not rooting for Boston, even though I got the colors on. I got gold to win this thing in seven. And between the first two games, it's kind of been up in the air. And I think this, and I think the, the key for this specific matchup, guys, is based on how the role players play and the bench included. Because we know the stars are going to come out all, all, hitting on all cylinders. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to do their thing. Steph, Clay, Draymond, they're going to do their thing overall as well. But how are the role players going to come out and play? Game one, Boston annihilated Golden State in that category. Al Horford stepped up big. Uh, And and, and, and other key players on that Boston Celtics team pretty much took over that range and annihilated the Warriors to get that game one at the Chase Center. Big statement win. But the Warriors are also experienced. Which is why they came back and beat Boston the way that they did with the emergence of their core, especially with Jordan Poole hitting, uh, hitting from all cylinders, even from inside half court, with walking up with Steph Curry looking behind him like he's a proud big brother that my light-skinned brother is finally coming along. Don't worry, brother, I understand. So that being said, man, I think the rest of this series, role players gonna determine who's gonna win this, who's gonna win the series. And it's an uphill battle for both, but going into Boston not a joke it's no joke even though can't stand boston for other reasons at the end of the day they're going to are going into td garden house where it's going to be uh the boston garden where it's just legendary and it's hard to win basketball games but i think the warriors are prepared for it now i'm a dishes assist to my boy Gabe, so i need you to make this shot for me and telling me what
1: are your thoughts on game one and game two? And what should we expect from this series moving forward? Um, I thought Boston, you know, in spite of uh, you know, their horrendous second half uh, as a unit, I thought they got what they came there for. And that was a chance to, you know, go into San Francisco and get a split. Um, you know, they had an opportunity to win both games. I thought they had a, a moment or two uh, in game two where, you know, they were in control early, you know, setting the tone. But one thing about Boston and we seeing it is, um, you know, with turnovers and, you know, when they, when they take care of the basketball, they typically in business and they got a chance to, you know, control the floor of the game. You know, the defense is always going to keep them in it, but I think they got real reckless and careless with the basketball the other night um, on Sunday in game two. I thought the spacing, you know, could have been a hell of a lot better um, offensively. And I think it had them discombobulated guys like Horford only taking, you know, a handful of shots. That has to change. He wasn't as aggressive. Um, I give credit to Golden State for, you know, making the necessary adjustments. Draymond and Golden State, I thought they brought a level of physicality um, in game two that they didn't bring in game one, and the Celtics failed to match that. And um, as a result, you know, you, you they got thrashed in the third quarter. Granted, Golden State, we know that um, over the years, that's been their magic quarter, if you will, when they really go on a big-time run and they insert their will on a ball game. But Boston proved in game one that they can respond well to that. However, you can tell through the first two games, in spite of the Warriors, you know, showcasing that they are the more experienced team, that Boston is not just going to run from them. Um, and I think it's been an evenly played series thus far. And yeah, it'll come down to, the you know, role players. However, it's also going to come down to the Stars as well. Um, Jay, uh, Jason Tatum, you know, granted, he had a nice night shooting the basketball. Um, in game two better than he did in game one. But in game one, you saw him get his teammates involved and he finished the game with over 10-plus assists. You know, maybe he's going to have to figure out a way to mix it up, getting guys involved, and maybe not having a score as much in order to help the Celtics um, prevail in this series. I still think Boston, you know, is, is the better team in this series. I'm not going to shy away from that. I think um they've been dominant through most of it in spite of it being an evenly played series thus far. But, um, they, you know, they still got a chance. I think when Boston loses games, they beat themselves. Um, the question is, is, will they take care of the basketball and continue to, you know, stick to the principles defensively?
0: That's very good points, very good points. And I'm looking at my boy Steve over here. Is that a Dreamville shirt on? I think we kind of lost him. Oh, yeah, you, get, know, got, you know how I'm right. Okay. I'm I feel you. I feel yeah, you. You know too. how I'm rocking.
2: <laughs> <I feel laughs> yes,
0: sir. You. I feel you, bro. So, uh, as you over here rocking with your dream, shop, shout out to J. Cole, who recently just ha- uh, played one of his uh, professional games uh, recently. Had a nice little show. I mean, anytime you can ever come out on the court at the sub with them playing your music in the background, <laughs> that's so gangster. That's not That's a whole other conversation in general. Talking but. I know, right? That, that, it's crazy, but we got to talk about this specific game still. And Steve gave it on a lot of points, but what is the what? But what are your keys that are necessary for not just Golden State to pull the series? Because I believe you have Golden after I, for, I believe you have the Warriors winning this series. What does the Warriors have to do to seal the deal moving forward after you, after what you've seen in uh, Game One and Game Two?
2: <clears throat> I think the main the main thing that the Warriors have to do, and that's this, is regards to both sides of the ball, is just dictate. They got to dictate pace. They got to dictate how things are, how things are scheduled um, defensively uh, for the Celtics offensively, and then they got to dictate terms offensively and um, in terms of forcing the Celtics to guard them in ways that they're that they're either not accustomed to or they're uncomfortable doing. So. The main, the main ways that they were able to do that is pretty much what they showed in the game in game two alone, where, uh, first of all, defensively, they were able to, they started switching a little bit more, and <clears throat> the switching one through five kind of started playing Close. with the Celtics lineups because um, them typically being comfortable playing with uh, with Horford and Williams at the four and the five um, kind of started working against them because all of the switching from the Warriors Started taking away the pick and roll for the Celtics, so they read a lot less pick and roll than they're typically accustomed to doing. So taking away that entity of their offense, um, in turn, stagnated ball movement, and it led to a whole lot of plays, with, uh, a whole lot of possessions where sets weren't being ran. So now we're seeing a lot of isolations, a lot of extra passing with no agenda behind it, and then they end up getting the um, the shot um, the shot display. That they, that they got, which was Horford taking only a handful of shots. Um, and then, you know, other players not taking as many shots as they would like. Um, and, like I said, that could can, that can be said, it could be a mindset thing for the Celtics, or you can kind of flip that, you can kind of flip your perspective on it and look at what did the Warriors do for the Celtics to get that, that shot, that shot variety in general that they ended up, you know, having at the end of game two. You can also look at uh, how the Warriors kind of switched up what they were doing with Draymond Green defensively? So typically, he's like their roamer. They'll put him on the quote-unquote weakest offensive player, weakest shooter at least, allowing him to play help side, um, show through to one side, um, and just kind of play center field and roam with no true responsibility. And then everybody else can trust on their defense on the weak side can zone up, and um, they can kind of play play with things with exiles and different things of that nature on the weak side of the ball. What they did this time was they still had that entity but they also were able to put him on, on Jalen Brown. So now Jalen Brown is arguably the um, Celtics' best catch-and-shoot uh, three-point shooter, and he's definitely their best off-ball movement shooter. So you put Draymond on him, so now that's taking away another entity of your offense to where, okay, if we want to run a pick-and-roll with, let's say, Robert Williams and Jason Tatum after some dummy action and then put Jalen Brown one pass away, or oh, wait, who's one pass away defending it? That's Draymond one of the best defenders, one of the best help defenders, one of the best anchors in the league. So that subtle little twist in where Draymond is defensively, is just it just unlocked a lot of havoc for the Warriors to wreck defensively. On top of him still being able to do his roaming whenever Jalen Brown's off the ball, when he was one pass away, which is what the Celtics typically like to do. When Draymond's there, that takes away an entire driving lane and a passing option in general. So now, again, the Celtics are off script, they're scrambling in the late clock, taking bad shots. A shot that they didn't necessarily, you know, want to go to, and it was just that little subtle change in where Draymond is defensively, on top of the the up the activity as a whole from the uh, from the Warriors, that really just discombobulated the the Celtics' offense, and then we saw we ended up seeing what we saw from them uh, with the live ball turnovers, especially, which is as we all know is one of the biggest cardinal sins you can have against the Warriors, especially at home because they get in transition, they got these guys filling the lane, not to just. Get to the basket, but to shoot threes—that's momentum. That's the crowd getting involved, <clears throat> and just in general, it's just a just a snowball effect. thing that you don't want, and now especially being on the road against them, so it was a it was a bad game for the Celtics for all intents and purposes. Um, Jalen Brown, of course, didn't have a good game. Jason Tatum had a good first half, but it felt like a lot of his shots—they were kind of like giving him the hat tip to him. Like, okay, if you're gonna hit these tough shots, that's cool. We're gonna make you work for him and you're also taking your offense out of the flow because no one else is touching the ball, really. Um, and we saw that evidence by the, you know, like we, we talked about the amount of shots that other guys were taking. So uh, I'm just looking at the Warriors dictating terms um, pretty much in an all-encompassing manner, even more so uh, defensively than anything, but that, that in turn allowed them to establish their flow going over to the other end offensively, both in transition and in the half court. And then in the half court offense especially, they were able to, have that key dynamic that arose during that Maverick series, which was generating offensive rebound after offensive rebound. And if you're getting Steph Curry drives um, on top of the Warriors' ball movement and then you're getting Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole punches and bombs from deep and all over the court, and you're allowing the Warriors to get offensive rebounds, there's no, there's no avenue for you to win through that. So I just feel like the Celtics kind of lost their grip in terms of having their um, – their punch punched in terms of dictating things within the game and that kind of snowballed into what we saw in game two, especially in the second half more
0: than anything else. Yeah, man. Uh, those are all uh, valuable points as well. You 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 gave a lot of explanation as far as um, this isn't just applicable to the Warriors but to the Celtics as well within their own ways. I think the biggest thing for both of them too, especially from the Warriors because they have such a history, um, especially when it comes to uh, these these playoffs currently is turning the ball over over and not just from defensively, but careless turnovers, unforced turnovers where they just give the ball up just because, or the bad pass here and there, you know, like obviously we understand their offense flows differently. It's very free and moving, which is, you know, fun to watch and fun to have. And it works well for the warriors as their bread and butter, but the, the, the bread has to be a little soft too. So the brother can spread pretty smooth. And you, the Warriors just don't ha- sometimes lose that smoothness when they turn the ball over and it keeps, and it keeps giving the other teams live. And Boston's a team. If you keep giving them chance after the chance at chance, they're eventually going to click and take over. And that's something that the Warriors have to watch out, especially I believe going into game three where they're not, they don't have the home court. They're not going to be home. You know, not gonna have the home court advantage. Not going to be fans. Uh, it's going to be a rock in Boston, uh, Boston garden, completely different environment. On the road, obviously the Warriors know what it's like to be in those environments, but at the same time, this is a different Boston Celtics team that they're probably accustomed to playing in. So I think as long as the Warriors limit the turnovers, they'll always have a good chance of winning, winning, uh, winning their games, especially against Boston. But unfortunately, especially on the road, they are caref- they're carefree half the time to a point where they have all these turnovers and it keeps teams close in the games. As we transition to game three specifically um, happening later on this week, Gabe, starting with you, what is, what do you think or what do you expect to happen and take place in game three for either team? And who do you think is going to take, uh, take, uh, take on the W?
1: Well, I, I, what I expect first and foremost is for, um, Jalen Brown to continue to be aggressive and assertive, looking for his. Yeah, granted, you know, he had a bad finish to the game, but I think through the first five and a half to six minutes in game two, we saw Jalen Brown at his best, you know, making threes, getting inside the lane. um You know, I know a lot of talk has been going on about his handle throughout the playoffs, and rightfully so. But in spite of that, you know, he was managing to help get things done for Boston. So I expect Jalen Brown to be aggressive and to continue that going in the quarter one. I also expect Jason Tatum to be as well. Um, you know, I, I get your point when you talk about if Golden State takes better care of the basketball, that they will be in games. That's a fact. However, Clay Thompson also has to continue to be as effective as he showcased. He could be in that third quarter. Um, He has to do that consistency all for Um, minutes. You know can um, come through and rise to the occasion as he showed in the second half. Um, on Sunday night, then I think they have a chance. But with all of that said, um, I still think that, you know, Boston, um, with this being their first home game in the finals in 12 years, I think that crowd is going to be very excited and pumped up. Granted, there will be some Warrior fans in the building, I'm sure, but I, I don't think it will be as many as compared to, you know, those in the um, green and white. So I, I, I expect the Celtics to respond um, valiantly. Um, I expect the and and um, his coach. And staff, you know, to have those guys prepared and watch a fit because Stephen brought up a great point when he was talking about how the Warriors did a great job of getting out of transition and forcing Celtic turnovers. But it also comes down to taking better care of the basketball. Um, I, I expect Derek White and the role players, Marcus Smart included, to be better. Marcus Smart only had like two points in game two. I expect him to be a lot more aggressive as well early on, seeking to find his shot, if not setting up others. Um, easy opportunities.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Uh, give your uh, your your game three out um, your outlook on game three, what to expect, and um, who do you think is going to take the W on w- with this go around.
2: So I feel like, rightfully so, and understandably so, Marcus Smart gets a lot of attention for his defensive uh, efforts, multiple efforts, his IQ on that end. It's just him being, like, an anchor from the perimeter for that team. Um, and a lot of people kind of don't see or don't notice, at least, the efforts. And, and so um, getting others involved. And Justin, it wasn't a good game. It was an uncharacteristic game um, for the most part from him. So I'm expecting him uh, with a couple days off from game two to game three and then being back at home as well, I'm expecting for him to have a great game, uh, for him to reverse his fortunes that he saw from game two um, going into game three in the friendly confines of the crib. And um, just for him to have more juice. So him having more juice is going to mean him not only being able to chase and uh, do all of the things that he does defensively, either off the ball and chasing guys or at the point of attack on ball, uh, for him to be able to take those same efforts and be able to apply himself offensively, uh, generating those drives and paint touches which they need in the worst way, which they didn't have in game two, Um, and then see him in turn be able to move the ball to guys, allowing for second drives and wide open shots, Um, just generating offense and forcing the Warriors' defense to move and, you know, pulling at the strings that are help defense and um, just in general, just keeping things in flow for their offense uh, from the point of attack more than anything else. Uh, so I'm expecting Marcus Smart to have a good game in the turn. That'll leak into the rest of the Celtics, getting guys involved uh, organically and on script, and then they'll end up playing better. I don't know if they're necessarily going to win that game because the Warriors have found things as well. Um, as hard as it is going to be for the Celtics to counter, and as hard as it's going to be for the Warriors to kind of um, mimic those same fortunes that they saw in game two. I feel like with them having just any sort of rhythm in terms of figuring out how to attack that Vonnet Celtics defense, them finding things that they can, that should be translatable um, from game two to game three, I feel like that's gonna get them a great chance to win. And I actually think they're gonna go ahead and take game three of this series um, behind continued, you know, paint touches from Steph Curry. Um, them finding ways to get Clay involved and him finding his rhythm shooting, um, Draymond being Draymond, <laughs> on offense and defense, and just in general, them showing that that cohesiveness that's been the staple and signature of that team.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, man. I expect the Warriors to come out here and make a bold statement, um, especially after the way they got in, the, in their own way and form, uh, a little humiliated after game one. I think they're going to bounce back and it's going to be a close game, but I believe they're going to probably win within that five point range um, at the Garden. Uh, uh, game three is happening on Wednesday. We recorded it's on a Tuesday, but it's happening now. On a, but the game is happening on a Wednesday. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, 9 p.m. Eastern on ABC. So be on the lookout for that. And as we transition into different topics within the NBA, uh, we can talk about the Bulls because we are from Chicago and this is home, right? So let's talk about the Bulls, even though the season's over with because of recent speculation of the offseason so far has been all over the place. You have rumors about Zach Levine potentially leaving and who he might be partnering up with. But aside from that, the biggest rumor came today with reports coming out that the Bulls are most likely going to see what they can do to pursue and get uh, Utah Jazz Center, Rudy Gobert to the Windy City, and as much, as much as we need that defense, as much as we need that anchor, uh, especially in the paint, and we need rebounding, good Lord, let's not get it from Rudy Gobert. Let's not go that route. The only reason why is because he has a limited offensive game, and Billy Donovan's offense is is built for, you know, and uh, from an offensive perspective, you know, he needs to participate in that. Rudy Gobert doesn't fit that. And it doesn't fit the bull schem- schematically when it comes to versatility. Um, but at the same time, I think the biggest thing we have to acknowledge is the elephant in the room, which is, bro, you have a stupid huge contract you just signed where you're getting paid through a 25, 30, almost 30 million a year. That's only going to go up down the line with the salary cap increasing. I mean, I get it. But for a center to get paid that much money and not produce anything on the offensive end, per se, that can fit within a Billy Donovan offense, where especially if you're coming off a Billy Donovan offense that once had Vucevic, who can actually at least shoot the three, who at least can expand the floor in different ways and give the boys a different option. Versatility goes both ways, not just defensively, but offensively as well. And bringing in Rudy Gobert would dismantle that, um, especially when you're talking about trying to bring in Zach Levine on a max contract next year. Uh, or this off season, so I would not be a fan of getting Rudy Gobert, especially at this present time, to Chicago. I'm more of a Mitchell Robinson guy. You go to the, you can get Mitchell Robinson from an off, He at least has a decent uh, expanded game from an office perspective. Not where you want to be, but he can give something at least, and he does bring that young intensity from a defensive perspective, protects the paint, and he can rebound. I think having him and then bringing a solid backup. Can help with that paint perspective, but Rudy just is not the answer for the Bulls, especially right now. With the way that the contract is looking, for no offensive game at all. Um, I just, I just would not pull the trigger on that. And I hope they fix that situation in Utah because you already know their coach is gone. So all right, so with him being gone, I best believe and feel like Donovan Mitchell is going to be right next. So Rudy may actually want to stay because that might be his team. But <laughs> who, who knows? Um. Stick to the Bulls though, man. Steve, I'm gonna go to you on this, man. Is Rudy Gobert the answer to our defensive and rebounding problems in Chicago? And is he worth the risk of going after this trade?
2: <clears throat> All right, so the discourse around Rudy Gobert, it's been just growingly just gro- it's gross. It's gross. I just gotta I just gotta put it say if I see it. It's gross. Um, yes, some of the some of the things that have been said are extremely apt. Um, outside of screening, offensive rebounds, and being a vertical spacer, um, he doesn't offer much offensively. Um, however, the caveat to that, we look at guys like um, Robert Williams is an exception in a sense because he has a knack for making uh, passes that most centers or front court pieces can't typically do but mm-hmm. outside of his outside of his passing uh value that he adds to the offense which the celtics never use because they're you know they're spaced out around the floor including another better pass over Al Horford next to him you know they they hardly ever use that you know that skill set so it's really of no true value outside of late clock scenarios so robert williams is like i feel like williams and the celtics in general are kind of like a case in point for the bulls if you look at both rosters they have a lot of uh similarities as far as having a defensive minded guard or two, um, and like a Derek White and Marcus Smart, you can pair those two to Lonzo Ball and Carew. Caruso, you're getting the same thing in terms of having two anchor type guys from your defense on the perimeter. Um, you look at Robert Williams. If you add if you add uh, Rudy Gobert to the Bulls, you kind of see that obvious um, that obvious mirroring of rosters. And then you look at Jason Tatum and Jay- Jason Taylor and Jalen Brown, and then you add to that Zach Levine and Demar Derozan. So now you're starting to see all of these similarities that the two teams have. The main difference in, this, in the 2021-2022 season between the Celtics and the Bulls was the fact that one team had an arguably defensive player year-caliber um, center front court piece, and one team didn't. One team played five out balls. The other team had one center on the court at all times, if not um, two front court pieces. So in turn, you look at the defenses of the two. The Bulls had a top-end defense when they were healthy, but they had that one extra step that they couldn't necessarily take in the paint because they didn't have a rim protector in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, all of that to say, especially including the pieces that it would take to attain a, a all-world talent, the likes of Rudy Gobert, one of the best, um, one of the best big men the league has ever seen, statistically and via the uh, the eye test. Um, giving up just Vucevic, Patrick Williams, and pick compensation. Uh, if you can get away with attaining a talent the likes of him, for, and I'm not gonna say just that because that is that's a hefty price to pay, but kind of comparing what the, the production and just the overall outlook of balance and viability you give your defense is definitely worth the risk because you add uh, anchor to a team that that had troubles as far as containing the ball from the perimeter outside of Lazo Ball and Alex Caruso consistently. You add that paint presence to it, now those two guys who were arguably the – well, not even arguably, they were the, the best defensive backcourt in the NBA and two of the top, I would say, eight defenders for that first, what, two and a half, three months of the season. You add to that an elite, the, the best uh, rim protector on top of that, that makes the defense that much better. And then you, in turn, you play in transition more, which is something that the Bulls couldn't do in the second half of the season because they couldn't generate and sustain stops on the defensive end. You add to that the transition element. Rudy Gobert is excellent in transition as a rim runner and a vertical spacer using his athleticism to change into the floor, beat his man to the rim, and either hit rim runs for our early look aheads at the basket or obviously the vertical spacing, which is something that Lazo Ball is adept at. He's one of the five best live passes in the league. He wasn't able to showcase that talent this season much outside and transition to Levine. Or to the or Javante Green on occasion, because the Bulls don't have somebody for him to throw those lobs to him in the half court. You add Rudy Gobert, who's an elite screener, he can flip screens, you can set ram screens for him, or someone setting a screen for him to eventually get to the screen, which in turn puts the defensive pick and roll coverage out of position. Now he's rolling to the basket. Um and he can you can hit him on a um, on a second side pass to him for a whoop, or it could be a direct whoop from Lazo Ball. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what the offense would look like with Rudy Gobert. There's a lot of options you can go to, and the Bulls have multiple playmakers, which can help get him the ball and facilitate to him in positions where he can be successful. That's something that the uh, Utah Jazz have not had, and really any of the renditions since he's become um, a player in the league. They've had one specific, um, one specific playmaker, and Michael Conley, who's he's good, but he's an undersized guard, so it's harder for him to make a lot of those passes, especially in the playoffs, to get a guy like. Uh, Rudy Gobert involved, who's kind of one trick pony in terms of vertical spacing, and that's in the offense and scoring variety. So, looking at that and kind of changing that perspective from the trollish, the trollish thoughts to looking at how he can actually be a key cause for the Bulls, I feel like this is an absolute yes. You have to do this deal if you can, and you work on the fringes of your roster outside of that. After you add him to what you already have, you keep Lonzo, you keep Caruso, you keep um, you keep Zach, you bring Zach back. And you keep um, and you just add floor space and experienced veterans around that group, that's a very solid piece that not only raises your floor, but raises your ceiling. And when you're a contending team, you're not looking at horror picks. You're not looking at.
0: Oh, okay, I think we lost Stephen. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Gabe. Uh, Steve got Steve brought up a lot of good points, but you know, yeah, Gabe, I want to hear your perspective from this.
1: I'm a, I'm gonna say this in reference to to Steven's points. He makes a lot of great points. Um, Rudy Gobert is always among the league leaders in screen assist and whatnot. However, you know, in spite of the points he brings up, to play devil's advocate, how much, how often do the Bulls really run pick and roll? And that, Can connect- I answer that real quick. Yeah, go ahead. But no, Go ahead. I mean, because I don't <laughs> do it much. And then Billy is not as willing to open up his playbook to the level of which Quinn Snyder is oftentimes.
2: So to answer that question directly, the Bulls didn't run a ton of pick and roll. Exactly. That's because they weren't using Nikola Vucevic the right way. Like they had, a, they had an all-world talent at center last season in itself with Vucevic. <clears throat> and there were games where he struggled to even get touches and specifically in positions where he can actually showcase his skill. So if you have an all-world center, you're not necessarily using him to the extent that you should when you're healthy. You know, you take a center that's less apt in terms of being able to do more things, he's, he's good at a few concise things, so you use him for those key things, and you integrate more pick and roll, which is another thing that the Bulls' half-court offense needed, um, especially when they weren't healthy, you know. So, using that pick and roll should be something that's um, increased moving forward for Billy Donovan. And adding Rudy Gobert in place of Vucevic and doing so there it makes them a little more dynamic, in my opinion. Take away the shooting, yes, but you add that roller, that's, that's, that's pressure being generated. Somebody's going to have to account for him, whether it's the pick and roll defender, this that, Garden Gobert or the low man. That's no that going to open up shooters for the Bulls. I'm just thinking no about it from that perspective.
1: No doubt, but but, and I agree they do need to open up the playbook more and allow pick and roll, and you talk about how they weren't using Vucevic the right way, and some, in my opinion, sometimes they weren't using Lonzo the right way because Lonzo showed when he was in New Orleans that he could run a pick and roll with Zion. But, you know, with all that said, I'm going to bring up the numbers in which Rudy's getting over the next four years money-wise, 38.1 million, 22, 23, 41 million, 23, 24. He's also getting – he's also getting – um as I just lost it, but I got it back up now. 30, he's getting 43.8, 24, 25, 46.6 million play play 46.6 million player option, 25, 26. That's a lot of money to be paying a limited big, especially when, especially when I see bigs in the draft, such as Mark Williams out of Duke, who possess the same skill set that a Rudy Gobert does, who can also be a defensive anchor, who can also be a good um, rim runner and a roller, and a guy who can also get down and and um, defend guards out of pick-and-roll switches. He's not afraid to play against them. As much as I like Rudy Gobert, and I do think – um I, I do appreciate the fact that AK and Mark are at least trying to go star honey. I think it's very tough to give up a guy like Patrick Williams when you're thin on wing depth Um for the services of a Rudy Gobert who's limited offensively. And that's not a knock on Rudy Gobert. He's one of the best defenders in the league, and I do believe – if you, if you were to bring him to Chicago with Lonzo and Caruso being your anchors on the perimeter with him, yeah, you go from a, a top ten defense to automatically top five or three in the league. Um, they would be very exciting to watch. And you can also – he can also cover a lot of ground and help out in areas where Zach ain't willing to do it or DeMar may not be able to as well and other guys. But I just – I find that a hard move to do. And Vujovic, like you said, he provides versatility. You can play with him in a pick and pop. Um, Mitchell Robinson is another guy I would go after over Rudy because, one, he's younger. Um, and Mitchell has shown the ability to actually expand his game to a certain degree. Like he has a little outside shot, 15 to 18-foot range. He can, you know, he he's a good rim runner. He's a roller. It's so many bigs that, you know, even, like I would even take a chance on a guy like Clint Capella if I'm going to make a trade for a big over over Rudy because he's just as good as well when it comes to setting screens and, and, and rolling to the rim. and I mean, those bigs, you can find those type of big men. I'm not saying that Rudy Gobert isn't a great big in his own right, but I, I just feel like when you, you're thin on wing depth, you can't trade a guy like Patrick Williams and Wade unless if you're getting a top 15 player back in return. If you really want to go big game hunting, if you the Bulls, like I can understand it maybe if it was like somebody like Bradley Beal on the table. But Rudy Gobert with that contract, and I understand scare money don't make no money, but you also got to think smart because once you get Zach on a max deal, now you got three guys under max contracts or two if you get them. You got Zach and you got Rudy Gobert. And that kind of leaves you thin. And that third max guy who you bring in is definitely going to have to be a bucket getter and a guy on the wing that can provide them with some instant offense. Because as much as I like the Bulls and I think they're getting tougher and I think they have what it takes to take that next step moving forward once they get a couple more pieces, Rudy, I I just, I I don't like his fit here because I don't think Billy is willing to open up and expand upon his playbook. You know, it was different when he had Russell Westbrook. I think Russell's a guy who forces you to do that. I don't know if Lonzo's that type of guy yet, you know, and, and Lonzo, I, I think he's talented enough to be a guy that leads the league and assists one day, but I, I really, I, I don't know. Like I said on the show many times, I think Billy did a great job this season with the pieces that he had and the, the, um, the injuries, you know, being off and on throughout the year, but we really about to see what Billy Donovan is made of. And if you get Rudy Gobert here, um, your offense is going to have to—you're going to have to open up the playbook a little bit to get him involved, and to make sure that you maximize the, the asset that you have in him.
0: Yeah, guys. Police uh, report: Jake Fisher, uh, NBA writer, uh, that came recently came up with this article stating that not only are the Bulls a potential destination for uh, Gobert, but it's also the Hawks and the Raptors that are showing interest. So, if you talk about maybe you, you mentioned gave. Uh, going after maybe a Clint Capella. You could do a three-team trade maybe with the Jazz, choose to go that route and get younger, trading some picks here and there. You bring Capella over to Chicago while Rudy goes to Atlanta. That could be a difference maker too if they were – um, especially for Atlanta considering that they're trying to not only go after Rudy Gobert but also go after Jeremy Grant, which DeAndre are
1: – uh,
0: Yeah, and DeAndre Aiden. You know, there's a lot of potential options out there. Um, uh, for the Bulls to look into when it comes to filling this specific role uh, from a deep, from a center perspective, man. And like I'm with gabe, I just don't know that price is too steep, man. Especially if you already got uh, you know, you, scare money don't make no money, but you know it also But risk there's risk with all that. And Mark Eversley and A.K. are known now for taking risk, but it has to be very strategic. So I can't see them making a move after Rudy Gobert. Without knowing in the back of their minds, they're going to have to get some additional other pieces to go with that while also re-signing Zach Levine. So we'll just see how it goes. We know how how, um, AK and Emmy are good and what they do, and they have shown that they're willing to at least go that extra mile to figure out what's next. I'd rather take that than what the hell we just experienced with Gar Pax over the past decade. That being said.
1: could fit, though? You know what Gobert could fit? And I'm shocked that they haven't been in the reports and the rumors. Charlotte. Charlotte needs a big like him who can anchor and protect the rim. And LaMelo, he'll find you. He's going to play in a pick and roll. And with the, when you look at the guys that are being interviewed out of Charlotte from Kenny Atkinson, Mike D'Antoni, it's obvious that they're going after offensive-minded coach
0: mm-hmm. who's
1: going to open up the playbook and let LaMelo be great at what, he, what it is that he does. And that's getting out in transition and running and gunning. And and Rudy is suited for that. I think um, here it would be a hell of a lot of pressure on him. Uh, whereas, you know, you go down south a little bit, you know, income tax is not as high. You know, fans not as, as rowdy. Not No disrespect to Charlotte, but Charlotte has had a tough time in recent years getting fans to come out to the gate prior to LaMelo getting there. Um, it's just a different feel. He, he come here, he got to come with it off the gate. And it is going to be tough, especially when, you know, you got a team that is really trying to vie for a championship within the next
2: couple of years with a young nucleus. I just feel like I feel like Rudy can be the piece to a championship team. But he has to, A, have the, the, the offensive weaponry around him to mm-hmm. facilitate him appropriately. And, B, he has to have the appropriate weapons defensively around him for his impact to be as great as it could possibly be, and for, in turn, their impact to be, you know, as good as it can be. And I feel like there's a perfect marriage there as far as balance, offensively and defensively. You have issues with your defense this past season at the rim. You have one of the best rim protectors ever in that, regardless of the price. And then, in turn, on offense, you're able to offset his, you know, his weaknesses, you know, based off of the skills you have around him, playmakers, to keep him involved in everything. So, it's definitely, like you said, uh, Josh, there's a lot of different risks and uh, everything involved with either proposition to this, but just the fact that the Bulls have transitioned from never being involved in any rumors in regards to players that make even half sense to the team, to now being involved in almost every rumor possible, that's a nice, that's a nice step in the right direction. It's rather refreshing, I say. <laughs> I can agree with you there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, most definitely, most definitely, and. As from a pressure perspective, Gabe, that's a good point about bringing Gobert here. He has to be able to live up to the expectations that's going to be set here. But I will say, if he do, if MJ messes around and brings Gobert with the right coach from an offensive perspective to Charlotte, putting that with Mello, that raises stakes even higher.
1: So we they got to be- get a big. They got they got a big. They got to get a big. Like you know, Stephen brought up a lot of great points comparing the Celtics to the yeah. Bulls. Um, I see some similarities with the Bulls and the Hornets. The only difference is the Bulls have defensive anchors on the perimeter. I think Charlotte is still a much younger team trying to learn how to win and how to defend at a high level. They got guys with the potential to do it. They just got to get a coach. that come up in there or assist and be like, Hey, if you want to win, this is what's required. And I think they need, they need a vet of Rudy Gobert's caliber um, to come into that, to that city and, and show those guys what it takes to win. I, I think Gobert can be a championship caliber piece as well. But like you said, Steven, he has to have shooters around him and a, and a lot of great offensive weaponry. Um, the bulls are still trying to add shooters, you know, outside of Zach and DeMar. I mean, you got Kobe white, but we're still trying to, they're still trying to find out what their roster Intel looks like outside of their two, um, co-stars. And that's a good point that you mentioned. Let's transition to, uh,
0: the other side of the NBA where, um, you have, you're talking about a lot from NBA players potentially being hired for certain teams, but you also got some potentially that, you know, uh, from a coach perspective, they need hirings too. Quinn Snyder has officially left the Utah jazz. You also have, uh, well on the WNBA side, you got Derek Fisher who just lost his job. So that's a, that's a, uh, so he just lost his job from being the GM and a head coach for the LA Sparks. Um, but Charlotte is one of those teams that is searching for a coach. Like you just said, um, Obviously, they're going for the offensive mindset, but who is the ideal fit for the Charlotte Hornets? And based on where they're trying to go, because the coach not only has to bring an offensive mindset, but they also got to bring some maturity in this. Because last time I checked, Moss Bridges is definitely drinking lean on Instagram. I don't know what's going on with that. <laughs> so, so because of that, you got to be able to handle the off on the court, but off the court duties with drinking lean too. So. Who is the coach that ideally fits building a culture in Charlotte? Like, who is the type of guy that you can not only play for, but actually build and grow to help mature these young guys that are currently on this roster? That are the nucleus for the way this team and the core for this team to go moving forward.
1: In my opinion, I, I I don't know if he's a guy who can be like a father figure to him, but from a basketball standpoint, making sure that guys are on their P's and Q's ready to come on the work. I wouldn't mind seeing Mike D'Antoni in this situation. And I'll tell you why he's a guy who knows how to maximize the most out of his point guards. Um, We seen it in Phoenix with Steve Nash. I got a chance to see it, you know, in person with Houston when he had James Harden, he, pretty much moved him from the shooting guard spot to the point guard spot letting him create um, on the offensive end. I would love to see him with LaMelo Ball um and 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 see what he does from a from an X's and O standpoint because I really believe that offense could take off. They've already been to me a top 10 or 15 team. Like top 10 15 team to watch on League Pass on a nightly basis if you watch the league every night. I think they could elevate if they brought Mike D'Antoni in there. Quinn Snyder, I would like to see Quinn Snyder in there as well. Um, But if you get a guy like Mike D'Antoni, my only thing is with him, you got to bring a defensive coordinator type of guy into the equation. That assistant has to be a defensive-minded first assistant um, because Mike is so offensive heavy with his game plans and whatnot to the point where I'm not going to say he doesn't care about it, but he can kind of lose track of it sometimes. So I would really like to see either Mike D'Antoni there or Quinn Snyder. They definitely need to give Quinn Snyder a look. Um, I know Kenny Atkinson is in that top two, but I think with Quinn leaving Utah, um, they may have to wait a couple weeks longer to see who their guy truly is moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'll go, go ahead, see.
2: For me, it's Kenny Atkinson. I feel like he's the he's the perfect target to have as far as being in the the final the final rounds of the interviews and decision making for this for this vacant uh, coaching spot. <clears throat> and I feel like he's the best the best decision here uh, because we for as good as for as great as Mike D'Antoni's been, he's always had multiple established veterans to run his system. We've got to true. see him with any young like. Like useful, right type players that are still in terms of <clears throat> their skill and ingratiation to the NBA level, developing their skills, developing their brands, and all of these things. He's not an ego, he's not an ego manager in any capacity. So, in this situation where you have a Melo Ball, a Miles Bridges, a PJ Washington, uh, Terry Rozier, and you know, all these other young players, even a Gordon Hayward, he's a vet, but you know, he still has his needs as far as a player. Um, you have all of these pieces that you have to kind of make deposits to individually as a coach to appease everybody and keep a conducive winning environment, environment not just on the floor, but mentally for those guys. That's not, that's not Mike's cup of tea, um, as far as at least his history, his, his history suggests. What makes sense most for me with, with Kenny Atkinson is we can look at his most recent stand as a head coach with the Brooklyn Nets. You know, before they got Kevin Durant and they, before they got Kyrie Irving, it was Kenny Atkinson there with a young Carris LeVert, a young D'Angelo Russell, um, a young Jared Allen, um and Spencer all these other young pieces. Yeah, he had Spencer there, he had Joe Harris there, you know, he had all these younger younger versions of themselves now in twenty twenty two. He had them, you know, before they became the players that they are now. And he had them all in one environment and they were all playing at a high level, to the point where they make the playoffs, um, <clears throat> and what he did with that team, uh, especially even defensively, which we wouldn't re- we didn't really expect for that roster to have any like punching defensively, but they had they had that juice and then some under the tutelage of Atkinson. Um, I just feel like this this scenario suggests his intangibles as a coach, and you know all that we've seen from him production wise as a coach. They all suggest that he should be, you know, the decision that they end up finalizing to go with. And of course, they gotta they gotta solve that that issue at center, as we talked about in the last segment. But I just feel like he's the perfect coach to have because he can he can manage all of those younger egos. He has a track record of doing so, and just in general, he's just a different style coach that I feel like is fits the the way that their roster is set up at the moment.
1: It would be a hell of an opportunity for him, I tell you that because I know he's been itching to get back into the head coaching ranks and to be in you know Charlotte with an opportunity, you know, to get to the playoffs. That that would be a hell of an opportunity for him. I, I wouldn't be an objection to that at all. And Kenny does know how to work well with, with young rosters, and Mike is more of a veteran laden type of guy, but you know, very laid back, not known to really have shoot arounds for his guys and stuff like that. Doesn't, right. all that, that would have to change. If he went to Charlotte, for damn sure, yeah, he he would definitely have to do a lot of you know hard work and coaching
2: on those guys. And Kenny and Kenny's last opportunity was cut short, uh, if y'all remember specifically, mm-hmm. uh, because he decided he decided to play Jared Allen, who in was it twenty 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 nineteen, was definitely yep. better than DeAndre Jordan at the time, but the front office didn't see it that way, so they ended up getting him out of there unfortunately, and then. One- Jordan, who's been on a decline the last three, four seasons, and it's been an abrupt decline. While Jerry Allen's ascended to one of the top seven, eight centers in the league, and he was just an all-star this season, he'll put the Cavaliers on the map defensively after they, you know, attained his talent, acquired his talent. So just kind of looking at how it was cut short for him there, I feel like this would be a, kind of the NBA world kind of just giving him a new opportunity uh, and some good karma, saying, here, here's another opportunity with a, you know, a, a group of young talents that you can kind of do the same thing with and with the franchise that kind of has an open mentality as far as not having pressure on them. Similar scenario to where the Brooklyn Nets were at that time, so kind of paying it forward in the sense for
0: him. Yeah, Kenny Atkinson, I think, uh, will be a great uh, asset, like you mentioned, Steve. He led the tw- the Nets in the 2019, to so the playoffs with uh, that, and that was the year that turned D'Angelo Russell into a max player uh, yeah, before he too. ended up maybe an all-star before he, before he ended up getting that part of that trade, that and deal trade that brought Kevin Durant to the Brooklyn Nets. Um, but there's some um, other, uh, there's some other coaching, um, you know, situation that took place. We obviously know about the jazz and Quinn Snyder being gone, but the Lakers themselves hired, uh, Darvin Ham, uh, former Bucks assistant as their head coach. And there's a lot of, you know, speculation per se. How are they going to make this work? Especially with Russell Westbrook. Um, Having like, I think having a guy like Darvin Ham there, um, who has experience with with superstars, not just playing against superstars. Because I mean, he did play against LeBron James, and he's still one of the top three, best top two best players in the league um, after all these years. So you played against LeBron. He played against top tier talent. Um, You know, part of those bad boy Detroit Pistons, those Detroit Pistons teams that won, that had those championship Eastern Conference finals runs. Um, But at the same time. He's also coached them. I mean, he coached Giannis to being a champion um, as an assistant coach. So he knows what it takes to work with stars um, to get them to that next level. And on top of that, you retain Phil Handy, who I think is a key part to this entire Lakers roster moving forward um, because of the respect that the, the, the stars have for Phil Handy. They love working with training with him. And on top of that, his expertise that he brings to the game. So to be able to um, – have those components in place. And just from the way he spoke at this press conference, I think he will find a way to make it work with all three of those guys, especially if Anthony Davis can stay healthy and if Russell Westbrook can be the Russell Westbrook of old. Um, I think they, there is a slight chance, and I do have hope in Devin, in Ham to help at least put this franchise back in the right direction that it needs to go. Um, what was your guys' reactions? I'll start, well, I'll start with you, Steve. What was your guys' reactions regarding the hiring of Darvin' Ham? And where does this really take the Lakers moving forward?
2: Well, I feel like, like the Lakers are moving question mark right now. They don't know what they want to do with their roster in terms of <clears throat> are they going to keep us, are they going to trade Um The lure of the Lakers is not what it typically is because they haven't succeeded to the extent that they, you know, suggested they would after winning the championship in the bubble. They went from the championship in the bubble to a first-round exit last season to missing the playoffs entirely this season. So, you know, in terms of just looking at things from uh, from a perspective of trends, they're trending downward. Uh, And on top of that, their best player is LeBron James. And and as all-encompassing as his, you know, dominance is, He's on the decline of his career as well. Now, obviously, for players like him, P3, or even like a Steph Curry, when they hit that, that 31, 32, 33 in you know, an older age, yes, they see regression, but they're a lot, a lot more, you know, than most other talents are of the superstar, you know, realm. So yes, they have an older LeBron, but they also have to make sure that there's are full talents around them. And this is all into having a coach. Uh, I'm. I was of the, the group of fans and kind of um, outside on-seeers for the for the Lakers or for the Lakers, excuse me, for just looking in terms of the coaching. And I feel like it wasn't the issue last season. I feel like it was just a it was culture, or if you want to say it was just the players. Not as far as the front office putting together a roster that didn't necessarily make the most. Sense in terms of the league is right now and the elite. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of up in arms about their situation. I'm glad they found a piece that they feel comfortable with, but at the same time, is that is that piece gonna be changes the lack of emphasis that they saw defensively, the lack of continuity they saw offensively? Like, that. the main issue for me outside of their defense and the individual continuity on offense. And that was for their season's entirety, regardless of who was and wasn't in the lineup. And as far as having shooters and things that didn't fit, I think we didn't fit for them because you can see off of body language that they just didn't buy with each other. So no changes have been made to the roster in terms of that as far as relevant pieces. And the one looming question mark still continues to be Russell Westbrook. So they need to step a decision on him, regardless of uh, who the coach is in place. And in turn, you know, flip their roster and,
1: Aligning with that more than anything else, in my opinion. Yeah, well said. I mean, when I when I look at the the Darvin Ham hire, I mean, I like it. He's a guy that's gonna be straightforward and honest with his players. Um, he's not gonna have no agendas and no BS at the door. You know what you're gonna get. Um, he's gonna push his guys. I like the fact that he's brought in Rashid Wallace um, alongside of um, retaining um, Phil Handy. I think that'd be great for a lot of the young players to have experienced vets in the locker room, guys who have not only, um, won or in Darvin's case, he's won as a coach in the league, as an assistant, but one as players. Um, I think that that's a, a great thing to um, bring into a locker room, but with all of that said, they, I still got a lot of questions about this roster and I think that's the first order of business that the Lakers front office has to take care of is finding that, um, that decision as to what they do with Russ and the off season meeting Russ should they seek to, you know, keep him. The off season meetings have to be very key because I think Russ as great as he is in order for him to work in Los Angeles. He's going to have to learn how to play off of the ball more and that he's going to have to be willing to cut, you know, if the jump shots not falling or whatever, he's also got to be willing at times to be a catch and shoot option just to keep the defense honest. Um, he can't pass up, you know, wide open three point shots just to, to drive in when defenders are seeking to close in and collapse in the paint. Um, he has to get comfortable. I think they also got to get some guys in there um, that value playing defense. I think last year, everybody in the league found out the biggest secret to beating this Lakers roster. You're down to shoot from three. You make them run. And you 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 get the game once you make them run and you get and you get on like you going like a twelve zero run they are gonna get so tired to where they calling timeouts and once you let that crowd in it you pretty much done you know every everybody everybody knew the secret let them shoot collapse the paint and get out and run when you get the rebound and I think they got to get a little bit more younger they got to get a little bit more athletic um, AD and LeBron cannot do it alone I think they had a real good roster in spite of um, being a first-round exit with role players like Harold Caruso, mm-hmm. Kuzma, who was starting to really value and embrace being a role player in the league before finding his stride again in Washington as a secondary ball handler. You know, those guys, they, they had a nice nucleus, and, and they let a lot go for us. And they went all in on offense. And it, and it, it was an experiment that didn't work. So I, I think that this roster – um has to be worked on to some extent, Rob, They still got their job in their hands full because in spite of the championship and the bubble, LeBron's been there for four seasons. You've missed the playoffs two out of the out of the first four seasons of the LeBron James era. That's not a good look. To me, this is the biggest year of the LeBron James era in Los Angeles, and it's going to determine where the, the franchise goes moving forward, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, uh, those are all very good points. And um as we get ready to um slowly wrap this thing up, I wanna just highlight real briefly uh about the WNBA. Uh the sky have been uh on a roll as of late, uh taking over the East. And um, Steve, obviously, you know, you've been as one of the guys that's been going to the games, covering the games, things of that sort. Um, just real briefly highlight on the impact that uh the sky is having, not just within um, not just with not just within in the East, but also within the league as a whole. Um, I think they're starting to slowly find their gel with all the new players coming in. Um, I still think Emma Meeson is still the question mark as far as how she's going to come along with from a chemistry perspective and how she fits in, especially offensively with this team. But over time. You could tell that they're starting to get more familiar with each other, and they're starting to uh, gel well on both ends on the floor. I love the fact that Dana Evans has stepped up and t- really took over that backup point guard role. She has blossomed in that role. Um, I love, um, and I love the fact that you know they're they're seem like they're hungry again. They're like that that hunger is back to win another championship. Um, and on top of all that, bringing the effect of uh, KFC Kalia Copper coming back. That's a huge impact for them as well. Um, So there's just a lot of components within the sky that is really that's helping this team turn the corner and taking it in in the route back to the the title, especially since last year around this time, they were right at 500 or below 500 at one point with Candace Park and missing the beginning part of the season. Now they're starting to get their. It's a completely different turnaround this season. Talk about what you've been seeing and how um, it's affected and what they're doing now is affecting the upward trajectory of where this uh championship team is going.
2: Yeah, you made some excellent points. Uh before I touch on that, just I wanna make sure you bring some attention one more time to Brittany Grinder being wrongfully detained over in Russia. Uh, yes. we need her back home. Regardless of the basketball dynamic of her, we just need her back home. Uh, this is this is ridiculous. Uh, all right that aside, looking at the, the reigning champion sky <clears throat> um what can't you say about this team through through ten games? They sit at seven and three. They're currently third in the WNBA um, with Kalia Copper back in the rotation. They are, I believe, seven and one. Either seven and one or eight and one. I believe it's actually eight and one uh, with her in the lineup. So you, you kind of just look at the way this team is adding all of the, bringing together all of the talents that they have, and comparing it to the teams that we're expecting to be in that same realm as them. And also factoring in that they have another guard that should sure be a part of their rotation, Julie Alamon, <clears throat> who's coming over from her from her play overseas. Um I forget exactly which which uh which league she's competing in right now. Euroleague. her team's in the yeah, in the Euro League. Her team's mm-hmm. in the championship right now. Um, they're wrapping up. And she should be uh I believe Coach Wade said in his press conference to us last week. That she should be home sometime at the end of this week, so that's going to be the final piece to this team, kind of uh, progressing towards what we're going to be expecting to see rotation-wise the rest of the way. Uh, so looking at looking at as you mentioned, Josh, the, the Lumen dynamic that is that is Emma Measeman, um She's she is everything, um, and this is not to bash um, Stephanie Dawson in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Emma's just better. She's not just better for the sky. She's just a better player in general. And she's already shown that through 10 games. And Coach Wade, without saying that directly, because obviously, you know, he's a head coach and he can't say things like that, but he's kind of subtly hinted at feeling like Emma's a better choice as far as being a piece to put next to Candace Parker in the front court and also play with Azra Stevens and play all three of those front court pieces at the same time. <clears throat> Emma's just been a godsend from the offensive end, being a connector. Uh, whether it's the dribble handoff scenarios, playmaking from the post, um, spacing the floor and shooting, being a screener and passing on the short roll, doing all those things, So even more so in the defensive end where she's able to hedge out, she's able to play at the level, she's she's able to play a short drop, causes a whole bunch of deflections on the ball and off the ball, she's tagging rollers, she's pill switching with guards, <laughs> she's literally doing everything. And a lot of the stuff that she's doing outside of the steals and blocks Shows up, um, don't show up on the stat sheet where it's like the little things of communication. She'll scram guards out of uh, mismatches in the post um, and then put the other team in the rest of the clock because they, th- they thought they saw a mismatch and then it's not there. Um, she's coming over at hell doubling on the block on drivers. She's doing like literally everything and she's doing it so consistently that the sky and turn are now from that little, that shortly over 500 start that they had, now they're seven and three with a lot of breathing room over that, over that threshold. And they're really starting to hit that blend in terms of getting all of the things that they need offensively with those things that they need defensively and combining them to start showing semblances of that team that they had last season with potential to punch even more than that, because they're so much better early on. And they have even more pieces for James Wade to have in his rotation long term as they continue to mesh those talents and skill sets together.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the uh, biggest components too that we have to mention is the rookie herself, Rebecca Gardner. She has yeah. a huge defensive. She's she's emerging as a two way player for this franchise, but at the same time, she's making her staple on the defensive end, and it's showing and becoming a huge help, especially when you pair her. In that second unit next to Dana, that's what it keeps the team afloat until you bring in the final until you bring in the starters back in. With especially when you play her even on alongside of uh, um, KFC, and Kalia, that's very dangerous uh, lineup. That Wade has an option to mix with, and especially when you're talking about focusing on a defensive end within the perimeter, which is something that I think he will make. He may eventually go down the line, using a lot more often, as well as as long as Garter continues to improve, improve not just. Within a role defensively, but even more offensively, which is a huge boost for the Chicago Top Sky team as a whole. So those are things that we have that that's happening with the Sky and the the every the, the season's looking bright. Um, and we'll see how, how, how we we'll see how far in the sky that uh, that they touch. And I see you have got a point you may want to briefly harp on, Steve. Um, yeah,
2: because so. see, you you can't pick up, you can't bring up Rebecca Gardner. <laughs> and not continue to hit on just how impactful she is defensively.
0: So in terms of
2: the Sky's lineups that they've used this season, regardless of whether Kyle was here or Kyle was still overseas or coming back home or whatever, um, just looking at the the amount of time on the court that those lineups have, have had, outside of the starters with Kyle and Copper, the second most used lineup has been the starters minus Quigley and with uh, Rebecca Gardner in the lineup. And one of, the, one of the best points you can bring up is that last game of, on uh, Friday against the Atlanta Dream where they had the rookie stud, Ryan Howard, that they were up against. And they used her in a multitude of ways, on the ball and off the ball. And being able to pair, like you both like you mentioned, being able to pair Rebecca Gardner's efforts with Kylie Coppers, now you can put one of, those guy, one of those women on the ball and take Ryan Howard's responsibility and then put the other one off the ball to wreak havoc in passing lanes. And that's quite literally what James Wade did with their, with their, uh, with their plan of attack against against Ryan uh, on Friday. They literally put one of those two on the ball, let the other one work off the ball, and they were able to take away essentially both sideline actions simultaneously to force the force the dream into a lot of late clock situations. And that mm-hmm. I feel like it was their first test against the elite wing offensive weapon to pair those two against, and the returns were ridiculous. Um, I believe Ryan had her second lowest usage percentage and then she had her second worst um, efficiency-wise scoring game and her second, her second lowest uh, scoring total as well. Uh, so being such a score-first phenom and being able to be held in check by two veteran defensive, um, defensive wings, I feel like that's just a great example of what can become even more resounding as far as an effective impact on the sky defense. Just between those two individually, not even talking about what everybody else did defensively, um, so, I feel like that was a great point for you to bring up. Uh, we're bringing up Rebecca Gardner. And if it wasn't for Ryan Howard, I feel like she would have a lot more say so in <laughs> the, rookie the, year, the, the rookie of the year race. But, you know, she's going to run away with that eventually, and rightfully so. But, yeah, I just had to definitely bring that up for Rebecca.
1: They got more depth than I ever seen, man. Um, <laughs> compared to last year. I mean, what I like about it, what I like about it the most is it allows you to keep the vets fresh you know, from Slew and uh, Quigley, you know, doing what they do. uh, Like, Wade got a lineup, man, where he could pretty much go, like, nine deep, you know, and uh, that's something that is going to make them a real intriguing watch, you know, moving forward. You can tell that they taking a start to this season uh, very personally, you know, after the way they started last year, you know, um, playing, you know, 500 ball, so 500 ball, you know, got people in and out the lineup. You, you can tell they really – Taking the, um first, you know, half of the season very seriously. And they trying to set the tone early to um make sure that they put themselves in a great position, come playoff time.
0: Most definitely, man. We'll be definitely checking the sky out throughout the rest of the season and also checking mm-hmm. out to see what uh, how many all-stars we're gonna have from the team when we're playing mm-hmm. the all-star game when they come to Chicago next month. So definitely gonna be on the lookout for that as we continue to cover the game, uh, cover the season for the Chicago sky. We are in the building literally and figuratively, we are in the building with the sky, man. So definitely be on the lookout for all of that and the great work that guys like uh, Steven and our man Chris are doing and covering the Chicago sky. Um, and as we wrap up this show, I'm going to end a note on a very good note because we talk about Chicago sky. Chicago sky have one player on the team who is from, you know, DePaul. She a real blue demon. <laughs> uh, to, to, to the she's a part of the blue demon family, Ali Quigley. We're going to continue with the blue demon family aspect because Coach Doves is getting these recruits, boy. He's getting them, mm-hmm. they're coming to the mm-hmm. shot, man. They just picked up another recruit recently, uh, class of 23, uh, 2023 four star player, uh, Power Forward Safari Gapair. And, um, man, Coach Doves isn't he's not, he's not playing any games, he's try, he has a lot to do rebuilding the culture of the Paul, which I believe he's done a great job in so far this season or this past season. Um, Javon, you know, Freeman Liberty set the tone uh, for the, for the, uh, the team moving forward as he's now, you know, being put through the NBA draft process and recently reportedly had a workout with our, with the hometown Bulls. So we wish him nothing but the best with that, but they're setting the tone for net next year and years to come. And uh, he's already had uh, a top recruit, I believe, in Nelson Cruz coming through. You adding he's now. Young. Yeah, yeah. So now you mm-hmm. over oh, here adding another t- top 23 uh, recruit. I, one of the <laughs> things I, I've always heard and known was Coach Stubbs, if he, he can coach. But one thing he can do is recruit. And he mm-hmm. is getting those guys coming from, um, high, from the high school range and even the transfer portal coming to DePaul and he has, but they have a lot of shoes to fill. They lost David Jones this year. He's transferring to uh, St. John's. Uh, uh, he also lost, you know, very leadership from Brandon Johnson. You also lost Javon to the draft. You lost. Well, you have Nick uh, uh, agenda coming back, uh, even though, cause he, um, you know, stepped away from the draft process and opted to go back to school. So that is something that, you know, the Paul has uh, going for them. Um, but, Knowing Coach Stubbs and and the, and that uh, circle in general, they're trying to make noise next year. And they did a I think they sent a very good statement this year. They didn't win a lot of games per se, but they already doubled their wins so, uh, total from the last year. David Lado was there, and on top of that, you also sent a message competitively. I want to say uh, half of the conference games that they played were all decided by five points or less. So you're mm-hmm. talking about from a competitive perspective. Paul is bringing the heat slowly but surely, bringing the heat and adding that recruit. Dare I say, Gabe, not just uh, Blue Demon basketball's back?
1: I, I, I'm not gonna say it's back yet, but it, it's on the rise, and I think <laughs> it's in a good place. Um, you know, because I've been following the program since I've been there, like since I touched down on campus fall of 11. So, I mean, it, it's been some rough years, but it's promising. Um, you can tell that they got a real coach in the building, and um, and and, and I gotta give credit to Paris Parham. You Know his uh lead one of the lead assistants, Bino Ranson, and those guys they've been on out in the field working too. You know, as much as Stubbs has been an excellent recruiter dating back to his days at Oregon, um, he has a hell of a culture staff besides him. Um, I think I I, I like where they're going, and they had they 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 showed progress last season, you know, competing in games, beating some top teams in Wintra, such as Mm -hmm. Seton Hall beat Marquette on senior night, you know, that I can't even recall last time that they beat Marquette in their own building, um, at, at home, you know, in front of the fans. Did so they get
2: UConn a scare as well?
1: Yeah. They, 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 they competed with UConn for a bit. You know I mean? this they, they I, I like where they're going and I think they're going to have a nice backcourt with Zion Cruz and, um, Amar Bynum, Will Bynum's nephew, you know, who redshirted this year, who will be mm-hmm. in the mix. Um, they they, they're gonna have they're gonna be loaded at the guard spot I just worry about them from the big but if they if they could build off of the momentum that they have put together in year one I think they got a chance to do some great things you know if, if you a program like DePaul you would take like six plus wins in a conference like they got last year if I'm not mistaken they didn't even finish last so that was a big improvement you know you think about all the years since they've been in the big east they've been down um, I won't say they back yet, though, but they definitely on the rise, and it's a great thing to see. And last time I checked, they still in the running for Imani Bates.
0: I was going to mention he that. Had,
1: he hasn't even chosen school <laughs> yet, and, and he in the top six. So if they can get him in the mix, it's going to get real interesting. Then I, I might have to say, hey, it's looking real good.
0: I feel you. I feel you, man. I mean, definitely going to have to make a, uh, an emphasis to check out some of these Blue Demon games next year, man. Over of, of there, Wintrust. Because when, because when Wintrust is rocking, hey man, there's nothing like it. When you're talking, when you talk about the city of Chicago having basketball uh, at an elite level, like Paul has the potential of where they're trying to take it. Um, that being said, yeah. man, this wraps up the show. Thank you for running with us because, as you can see, we don't stop running. We keep it going fast break style, and we have done all. We, we just, we just getting started. We got so much going on uh, going on with Chicago Sky play. You know, we're obviously going to keep in touch with the Bulls, you know, and the WBA as a whole, Brittany Griner, we need you to come home. We want you to come home, so let's do continue to support everything we can to get her home as well as support the WBA as a whole. If you're a true basketball fan, come check out these games, man. Watch these games. Support and invest in these games because they are the real deal. And moving forward um, with my guys, man, Steve and Gabe, is there anything you would like to say to the audience uh, from any projects coming up uh, that we need to highlight and make sure that our audience pays attention to?
2: Go ahead, Gabe.
1: Not at this time, man. I mean, I'm just watching a lot of basketball, watching the finals, I'm definitely watching the sky, trying to check out and see, you know, what's going on in the local scene. Uh I just got some good news today about my alma mater St. Rita with Maurice Johnson and um James Brown making the under 17 USA basketball team. So shout out to them guys, man. And um Rashawn Russell, who's building that program up, just got a big time um transfer out of Lamont. Uh the two spot, I forget the kid's name, but he's putting up like 20 and five, I think, in Lamont. And you know, they playing a nationally ranked schedule. So it's it, all around in the city. It's a lot of great things going on and um uh, like you said, Josh, people definitely need to pay attention to it and check it out.
2: Well, for me, just keeping an eye out for everything pertaining to the WNBA. Um, definitely a lot more, a lot more stories, a lot more uh, film sessions, and just everything in general regarding to covering the Chicago Sky and the WNBA as a whole. And please watch those games because, as Josh said. In the uh, opening to this closing segment, the WNBA is a lot of high-level basketball being played. If you're a fan of basketball in general, you're going to enjoy these games. So if you haven't already started, it's the perfect time. A lot of teams are starting to establish their identities and starting to get pieces back from overseas as well. So teams are beginning to kind of mesh and put things together. So this is the perfect time to start paying attention and keeping an eye out on the scoreboards and actually watching the games and supporting these women because they're playing high-level basketball as well as supporting the NBA Finals. Um, I have a few more stories coming regarding different things pertaining to that as well. So yeah, a lot of basketball being played at a high level right now. Just make sure you um, make a deposits and uh, attention to all of it and not just one segment of it.
0: Most definitely, man. Steve, over here talking about making deposits, we out here casting checks because we over here continuing to put stuff out on a consistent basis. And you can follow all of that content On War Media, War Media on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. We're all over the place. You can catch the the podcast version of our shows. on War on Anchor, which is on all podcast platforms, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Apple Podcasts, you name it. We are all over the place, constantly giving you all types of content. And just be on the lookout for that because this is just, just getting started, man. Just getting started. So just continue to check out the work that we do as we continue to provide the content for you to check out, man. And in the meantime, out of all of this, as our boss, our founder, Kyle Means always says, and our runner, keep bouncing.